Hi friends! Welcome to Charlie and Steve Watch Stuff, and today we are watching The Devil Wears Prada. My name is Steve Selnick, and joining me as always, yes, those are the Chanel boots, it's Charlie Peppers. <laughs> Charlie, how you doing today, friend? I'm doing well, ready to not move at a glacial pace, because I know that that doesn't thrill you. We're going to just get as many of these movie puns in as possible as we talk about it. But the person who actually helped me remember how exactly to say that line so we could get this thing kicked off and on the road is here with us. We have another guest joining us on Charlie and Steve Watch Stuff for another movie to talk about. We'd like to welcome in Billy LaRusso. Billy, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, guys. How are you all doing? Oh, we're doing very well. Thank you. Now, as we always like to start off in Charlie and Steve Watch Stuff before we actually dive into the content itself, Charlie, this is another one of your friends that you're bringing onto the show. So I would just love to hear quickly about how you and Billy are connected and know each other. Well, I first met Billy through his incredible partner, Mark. Mark and I, we worked on a production together, forgetting what the production was a few years back, but... Me and Mark hit it off, then eventually I went over to Mark and Billy's place to watch, I believe, what was an episode of Drag Race, and then proceeded to hit it off with Billy. Billy is one of those people who's so effortlessly funny to the point it's just such a delight to always be around him, but he is also someone who knows how to be funny without being mean, which is a really rare talent in Los Angeles. If you were to read any of his work, it flies off of the page, the characters come to life, he has a really great attention to detail, he's passionate about what he does, and he's also such a damn sweetheart. And I think the years have flown by in terms of how long we've gotten to know each other and have been in each other's lives. I don't know, Billy, how long have we known each other? Yeah, I was actually just thinking about that as you said it, and it's crazy. I think we met in 2021, and it feels like it was just yesterday, but yeah, it's been three years now that we have been in each other's graces. Yeah, yeah, and I'm going to Billy and Mark's wedding in July, so mazel tov, congrats, can't wait. Thank you, uh, yes, we can't wait. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Very cool. I love, I, I will never get sick of hearing Charlie gush about his friends. It's one of my favorite activities. I know. He's really so good at it. It's so, it's so like articulate and eloquent and flattering. So thank you, Charlie. And please know that everything you said is mutual. You are fantastic. And I'm very excited to be talking with you for the next couple hours. Quickly, before we get into the plot of The Devil Wears Prada, which is the subject of our podcast today, Billy, I, I know Charlie just mentioned quickly that what you write jumps off the page to him. Will you quickly just fill us in about what you do, what, what you write and stuff like that? Yeah, my, my pleasure. So I write a lot of adult animated and adult live action comedy. I think I thrive in the sitcom world, mostly, where... You know, I, I tend to like to write pieces that make people feel comfortable, they make them laugh, you know, when you're homesick from work or homesick from school or, you know, whatever, you can pop on an episode and you always feel like it's just like a warm blanket covering you, like comfort meals, but for television and movies. So that's kind of the world I live in. I, I really enjoy an, a nice satirical look on anything really, but especially things in the government world and, you know, the entertainment world, things along that vein are very much what I enjoy writing. Right on. Very cool. Yeah. Well, we're, it's an honor to have you on the show with us today. And we're going to jump right into 
the subject of, of today's podcast. I believe a favorite for both of yours or a favorite film of both of yours. Is, I, I would assume so for Charlie, since he's the one who <laughs> picked this as the subject of the first movie we're covering in our movie swap. But we are covering The Devil Wears Prada, released on June 22nd, 2006. It was written by Aileen Brosh McKenna, who is the writer of the film's Morning Glory, 27 Dresses, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, that's a TV show. And it was based off of the book by Lauren Weisberger, and it was directed by David Frankel, of course, starring Anne Hathaway and the legendary Meryl Streep. And the plot of the movie is Andy, Anne Hathaway, is a recent college graduate with big dreams. Upon landing a job at the prestigious Runway Magazine, she finds herself the assistant to diabolical editor Miranda Priestley, Meryl Streep. Andy questions her ability to survive her grim tour as Miranda's whipping girl without getting scorched. And since this is Charlie's movie that he chose in our first movie swap, I'm now going to pass the proverbial pump over to Charlie to take us through the plot of the film and to go over what we loved. So Charlie, take it away, my friend. Let's dig into the beginning of this film, gentlemen. Act one, New York City, early morning. We see a lot of women getting ready for the day, and one of the first things that I realize is the effort put into making Anne Hathaway just look like the every woman compared to all of the model-like girls who were getting dressed to, I assume, work at the Runway magazine, so that juxtaposition was a really smart way, in my opinion, of just showing how far she had to go in her transformation and what she would ultimately step inside of. There's also a bit of the script that I wanted to share with both of you. Andy's character description is telling. It says, Andy Sachs, 20s, pretty but not glamorous, smart but not green, hair up in a towel, brushing her teeth. Very simple, very straightforward, and it tells us pretty much everything we need to know about this character. So I have a question for both of you. This movie is so iconic and it's so a part of pop culture. Did it feel like when you were watching this movie, you had already experienced other movies or TV pilots that did setups like this? Because I feel that particularly in the mid 2000s to the early 2010s a lot of pilots were really influenced by this movie and we had a lot of the working girl goes to work at a magazine or a fashion house and they have a demanding boss so i'm wondering if you saw anything that reminded you of this movie i mean i definitely think i've seen a few pieces not even so much you know just from that specific era charlie i think you know, long term over the past like 30 something years, it's become such a used trope that we see, you know, one version of this character before we know who, that this person is going to change. Even something like The Princess Diaries, you know, to bring up another Anne Hathaway movie mm. where we see a character sort of living in one realm before they eventually move into another but with regard to the the specific like getting ready montages and things like that yeah now that i'm thinking about it one of my other favorite films you know legally blonde is very similar in in theme to this you know there's no necessarily makeover look l woods always stays this you know put together like barbie type she just transitions through but in the beginning of the movie the beginning of the film we see her getting ready you know, to go on a date and whatnot. So yeah, I think that that's okay. a nice parallel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love this opening, you know, with very few words, we're able to 
pick up exactly on exactly who our protagonist is just by juxtaposing her morning routine with the other morning routines of the runway girls. You know, I love the little things like Andy grabbing a bagel and the other girls grabbing almonds. We see Andy getting on the subway and the other girls getting in town cars. You know, the other girls are putting on lace panties and and high heels and Andy's putting on uh quote-unquote frumpy sweater and like high socks and an ugly skirt and all that stuff so yeah i think the devil wears prada excelled at this a very common trope in that time when you think of shows like you know ugly betty or you think of movies like legally blonde where we see people getting ready you know i think devil wears prada really is the golden standard for that type of opening so i think it took what was highly influential at the time and before it and sort of ran with it and gave us everything we needed to know about our protagonist without any words spoken at all to yes and what you said going into a character introduction without any words spoken at all is miranda Priestley. When we see her breeze into the office, before she opens up her goddamn mouth, we see how everybody makes space for her. People are like, oh, I'm so sorry, Miranda. Oh, I'll give you the elevator, Miranda. So she very much is the head bitch in charge. She's the devil and the devil wears Prada. She is just so iconic in this role. And what I really love is that the first encounter that she has with Andy who comes in for her job interview at runway shows on full display what both her strengths and weaknesses and what Andy's strengths and weaknesses are because to be honest Andy showed up to a whole ass job interview not researching anything anything Mm. that baffles me for as smart as this character is to this day i kind of raise my brows like girl really so i i'm very much on miranda's side in this scene when she says oh and you have no sense of fashion actually i don't think that's no no that wasn't a question so (laughs) what what do you think it is about Andy in this scene that impresses Miranda enough to give her the job after having such a sloppy start. I think that, and I think they touched on this a little bit as well with Emily, kind of when when Emily sets up like, oh yeah, the last two have gotten like chewed up and spit out by her. I think that there's a, and and maybe it's referred to later in the film as well, like a, a notion of like, yes, this person is a fashion disaster and she didn't know what she was walking into and maybe that's what we need. Maybe that's why these last few people have failed because they're all cut from the same cloth and maybe going against the grain here is the right answer and i think she does see like a lot of the like i don't give a fuck sharp edge smartness that maybe she had at that age as well double down on that i agree i think i think miranda is for lack of a better word kind of gagged when andy has the gumption to speak up and say like you know, hey, I know you think my clothes are terrible, et cetera, et cetera, but I'll work really hard. I don't think anyone speaks to Miranda like that ever in her life in general. I don't think anyone close to her personally, professionally, and to have someone speak to you in a manner that you're not used to, I'm sure everyone's experienced that, you're sort of taken aback. You know who you, you're always confident in who you are, but when someone checks you, you're taken aback for a little bit. And 
to speak to what you said earlier, Charlie, I think I agree with you. It's I'm kind of thrown off like, oh, she's this this smart person who got accepted to Stanford Law School. Like she's showing up to this interview unprepared. I really think we learn why a bit later in the film. And I think the answer is that for as serious as Andy is, doesn't take this seriously. She thinks it's going to be a cakewalk. So she doesn't mm. think she needs to prepare because as Miranda says later in the film, in the iconic end scene, I believe she says, oh, I get it. You think you're better than this. Or, you know, you this has no merit in your life. And I think that's where that character choice comes from. To, yes, and that I think that she makes it very clear from the onset, especially to her boyfriend, the, the future Adrian from Entourage, mm-hmm. that this is a stepping stone for her. Like this is if I can if I can do this for a year, I can get a job wherever I want. So this is very much so like a means to an ends where everyone else who stepped into this role, it's been their lives. And so it's very, very different place for her to be coming from into this situation. I think one of my favorite things about this film in particular is if you watch this, one of my favorite things about television or film in general is watching how characters interact with one another and what their feelings for each other are and how those feelings manifest in Mm. their actions and their words to one another. And I think watching this, despite the different tastes, the different interests, the different worlds that these people all live in, there's a respect from character to character that's shown every single in right. every single interaction, whether it's between Nigel and Andy, whether it's between Emily and Miranda, there's a respect that happens there. And I think at the beginning, Andy doesn't necessarily have that respect. And part of this film is watching the trajectory of Andy's brain go from, oh, this is nothing. This is unimportant. It's it's trivial work to actually having a respect for the industry. And this is part of her character growth, the industry and the people that work in that industry. For better or for worse, she gains a tremendous respect for them. I want to bounce off of what you said, because this movie, I love watching it, but it also gives me PTSD because I've been an assistant (laughs) many times. And with being an assistant, I, in my 20s, wasn't a good assistant or as good of an assistant as I would be now in my 30s because when you're an assistant it's all about an attention to detail and being in love with all of the details within a day which is why I would argue that the devil wears Prada is a work love story Andy is falling in love with the work falling in love with all of the micro details that go inside of it and in that between the lines of those details she finds a sense of self and that brings me to the next character who is the most glamorous hot ass mess emily emily love played by emily blunt the way that she's described (laughs) in the script is so great i want to read it it says andy turns and sees a taller thinner and amazingly more groomed clacker this is emily She looks the part of the sleek fashionista, but is propelled by a core of barely tamped down anxiety. I want y'all to know that I have had so many Emilys in my career of being on a desk and working as an assistant, and I have love for each one of them, even though some were a lot more pleasant than some others. But 
what they all have in common is that girding anxiety of I don't want to get fired. I don't want to get fired. Today could be my last day. I don't want to get fired. And that is that manic energy that you feel running all throughout Emily Blunt's performance. So I just wanted to ask both of you, like, have you either been an assistant or have you encountered assistants who just projected this anxiety onto you while they were doing their thing on a desk i'm so curious i spent a year as a games assistant at an advertising agency when i lived in la and it was like you work when you're working and there are no hours that are not working hours and some people handled it well and some people chain smoked <laughs> and, <laughs> and and did not handle it well and i it's funny that's all the stuff i could think about as you were talking about that and i i think this movie is in a way a love letter to all of those assistants that had to go through that life and also ruined the lives of any assistant that wasn't as on top of their details as emily and eventually andy will be I think like I also was a bad assistant in the sense that I loved the work, but I didn't love the details of the day. And that's exactly what you have to be as an assistant. And I have since hopefully I show this in the way that we run this podcast. Oh, become Steve, a lot more Steve, you in love be, with the details. You would, <laughs> you would be an amazing assistant. I'm always blown away with like now I'm always like, damn, bitch another calendar invite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're so you're so on it. You you're so on it. Well, if 23-year-old Steve could see me now, then he'd be very proud of 34-year-old Steve, but that took a long time, <laughs> a long time for sure. But yeah, I totally I totally see the parallel. Billy, what about you? That's growth. I love that. Before I jump into that, I do I want to say in my notes here, I have in big bold letters Emily Blunt star. The comedic timing, the drama, <laughs> like the way this character's written. You know, I don't know if you guys know this, but just a little like tidbit about Emily Blunt landing this role. She was not scheduled to audition for this role at all she was just on the lot auditioning for another role that day and was spotted by a producer and asked to audition for this and clearly nailed it you know as you said it was Charlie, her first major role yeah first major role you know coming from it was her idea to make emily english in the original version of this in the book version and the i believe the original script don't quote me on that miranda is actually british and emily is not and it was emily blunt's mm. idea to swap them which i think is again brilliant because that it just adds so much to to emily's character but at any rate she's an absolute star all of her you know costumes her her comedic timing She's fantastic. I think it's a shame that the Oscars is just now introducing a best casting category because so this true. cast in particular, you know, would have would have absolutely taken an Oscar because like Meryl Streep and Hathaway so perfectly cast Emily Blunt, Stanley Tucci, you know, all really well done. So to answer the actual question that you asked, I will say, yes, I have definitely been, I work in the entertainment industry, which I'm sure everyone knows is a notoriously difficult industry for assistance. And I think I have, I've probably been both of those assistants for sure. I've been Andy and I've been Emily and I won't lie to you. I think by nature of who I am as a person, my Emily tends to come out more when I respect and admire the boss I'm working for sort of regardless mm. of the project. You know, I, it's kind of like that that childhood thing of like you want to impress mom and dad when you're a kid so it's like you want to you know you want to do well in school or whatever it's like i always have that kind of coursing through my veins when i'm working for a boss that i love 
because I want to overperform for that person. I want to anticipate their needs. I want to be there for them. And I think the way I watch The Devil Wears Prada, that's, again, part of the journey we see Andy go on. She gets better not only because she sees what it can do for her, but she starts to admire and respect Miranda. And as that Mm -hmm. admiration and respect grows, she wants to perform, not just for herself to prove to herself she can do it, but to show Miranda. I think one of the best moments in this is when she drops that Harry Potter book on her desk and with just such smug politeness yes. like the sweetest but so smug just oh no I'm, I made two copies they're with the children on the train to grandma's like it's a role <laughs> complete role reversal from that beginning scene where um, Miranda is the smug one now it's like I know I did this right girl like you can I'm gonna gag you you know I love it to go off of that that moment is earned because of the next moment that we get with this infamous infamous ass cerulean sweater monologue so this moment is so great because if devil wears prada is a movie all about the details the details in this monologue are just so wonderful and what i really like about it is that the scene immediately begins with (laughs) miranda calling andy by the wrong name and andy coming in and correcting her and going like oh no actually it's andy And the look that Miranda gives her, her face just freezing, then smiling. She's like, okay, I think in Meryl's head, Meryl's acting choice in that moment was like, okay, bitch, I'm going to fuck with you today. All right. I see you. I see you. She wants to smoke. She lost. She was like, okay, I see. I'm going to put you in your place in front of all of these people. But I can't help but admire the way that Miranda did put her in her place. Because I would say that if this movie were more... If it wasn't a screenplay with really fanciful dialogue, Miranda would have just been nasty and just saying really derogatory Mm -hmm. things to Andy. But because this is a elevated reality, a heightened version of the fashion world... The way that Miranda dressed Andy down was earned. Was there a slight air of abuse to it? Yes. Maybe I'm biased because I found it entertaining and it's Meryl fucking Streep. But the fact that she used it as a teaching moment and said, oh, actually what you don't see is this, 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 this. If I were with a showrunner who I admired... And they took me through the history of something in such an impeccable way. Respect. I would respect the hell out of that. And I would maybe be flustered in the moment. But I do think that this is the moment that was the turning point for Andy. And I also think that it was the moment where the movie makes whose side it is known. Because I do think that this movie is on Miranda's side. What do you both think of that monologue and of that moment? And if your boss were to say some shit like that to you, how would it make you feel? I am going to say, I'm going to challenge you a bit here because you said something I disagree with and something I agree with there. I disagree with the acting choice that you think Meryl made. Now, this is all, of course, just us speculating Mm. here. However, I agree more with what you said later, that Miranda's using it as a teaching moment. To me, what's going on in Miranda's head at this moment is not, I'm going to put this bitch in her place. It's more mentor assistant moment. This is 
the, the thing that sucks about this is this particular mentor is taking on a J.K. Simmons and Whiplash or a Lydia Tarr sort of personality where mm. it's they're they're not doing it in the nicest way possible. But for Miranda, I don't think anyone else exists in that room at that moment except her and Andy. So she's looking at it like, you know, think of the worst teacher you've ever had. The one that's like, like somehow brilliant, but you just isn't meant to be a teacher they're excellent at what they do you know i think of so many professors i've had where it's like you are so brilliant you just know so much but teaching isn't your game and that's how i look Mm. at miranda she's teaching andy in that moment i think she's still impressed by by andy's willingness to correct her and to to like let her know hey you know it's not emily it's it's not it's this is how you pronounce this is my name so I, Mm -hmm. i think it's less of a I'm going to I'm going to show you who's boss and more of a I'm going to teach you why this is important but good god am I not a great teacher. This is the turning point in the movie, I would say. I think that it's either the 15 minute mark which would be the inciting incident or slightly after the 15 minute mark which means that it is the moment that Andy starts seeing Miranda as somebody who is aspirational and starts to get why people create so much space for this creature to do her thing on the level that she does her thing. So I can mm-hmm. I can definitely see that. And the wonderful thing about Meryl's performance is that there's room to really read into what she's thinking because she is always juggling so many things in that monologue. Like, in the middle of the monologue, she even says something about, oh, I think we need more jackets here, or no, 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 we need to take 100%. something off the top there. So... Even while she's having this teaching moment, she is still working. I can't agree more with the the complexity of this character. I will die on this hill. I've been saying it for years. Ask anyone who's ever heard me talk about this film. This should have been Meryl Streep's third Oscar. Yeah. The Iron Lady is great, but I almost feel like the Iron Lady was a retroactive Oscar. This film should have been Meryl Streep's third Oscar. The reason, you know, when you look back at it is, I don't know, you know, they put her, the studio put her in the lead actress category. Now, despite The Devil Wears Prada being the title and Miranda being the devil, this isn't Miranda's movie. It isn't. We follow, you know, Andy is the one in every single scene. We have several scenes throughout the movie where Miranda's not present. We are seeing the scene through, or the the film through Andy's eyes, which is why I think, you know, Charlie, it's so easy for us to speculate more on what what's going on in Miranda's head because that's what we're supposed to do is speculate on that based mm. on us the audience being Andy it should the only so they put her in the lead actress category so that year she was up against Helen Mirren she was up against Judy Dench just like masters of the craft and I you know Helen Mirren won for the queen that year Judy Dench was nominated for notes on a scandal which if you haven't seen is also a chef's kiss of a film and for any actors out there if you want to if you're studying acting, watching Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett go toe to toe is a masterclass is, is not even, it's an understatement. However, it's funny because Her- Helen Mirren was also considered for the role of Miranda Priestly. Obviously had passed and took on a, the queen and that's who won best actress that year. It was a very tough year in general though, because even if Miranda had been in the supporting actress category, Jennifer Hudson won for Dreamgirls that year which is also a hugely Mm. deserved win. So 
I think mm-hmm. Meryl got a really tough year to be nominated, but this should have been, and it's, it's an Oscar worthy role. She was incredible in this from start to finish. She was incredible. I would even say of all three of the performances that you just mentioned, Meryl wins though, because I, I don't think see I either of those, those other two performances while fantastic being spoken about on this level, because I think Miranda Priestly represents something and she made, she gave us just enough access to Miranda's internal world that she wasn't a villain i don't consider this character a villain and as we break into the first act turning point we're gonna get more into why the cerulean sweater moment happens so andy respects miranda in this moment god this moment made my heart drop to the floor because i have a story to tell you andy has to get miranda a private jet in the middle of this (laughs) huge storm while she's out to dinner with her dad and she's on the phone with her boss. She's jumping back into the restaurant with her dad. She's trying to figure it out. Miranda's getting mad at her and snapping over the phone. Oh, man. I've been a celebrity assistant before. Being an, exec- an executive assistant, at least then your work, you could leave at the office to an extent. But being a personal assistant to both the actor and the pop star that I were personal assistants to. Jesus Christ, I never want to relive those experiences again because when you're an assistant, you have your phone and you have a work phone. (laughs) And I remember when I was in New York City visiting once, I crashed at a friend's place and I woke up in a cold sweat at two in the morning because there was a snowstorm and I forgot the work phone across town. (laughs) And my heart was pounding. I was like, what if he needs something? (laughs) So did I get my ass in that snowstorm and try to find a cab? And did I succeed in finding a cab? Nope. I took the train and I went and I grabbed that work phone. There were no missed calls, but that's the level of paranoid that I was as a assistant. So when I tell you that I felt felt for Andy in this scene. I'm not kidding. I think a part that we can identify with too that maybe we extrapolate from this or that you're extrapolating from your story about leaving your phone across town is maybe the three of us have all experienced the anxiety that at least maybe this is an experience for me that like when I'm in a work situation or a supervisor situation that I don't like every single time my Slack notification or my phone goes off, I feel anxiety without even looking at it. 100%. Yeah, so that sort of feeling, I had a previous season at a job that I, I I'm not going to say that second part because it's not even worth cutting out. <laughs> and it, it was the sort of situation where we were always on and we always started at 5 a.m. Oh, so no. So even, and I was the lone supervisor. So even when I wasn't quote unquote on for the first month or so more than that, I'm waking up at 2, 3, 4 a.m. out of pure anxiety and then trying to like also wake up and not immediately look at my phone and hope that there are no SOS emergency text messages either from the people that are working for me or the people that were working above me. It was a very awkward situation. I'm very glad to not be doing it anymore. But I like, I think that like anxiety of communication 
and how it can bleed into your real life as well is something that I think a lot of us can identify through not even unhealthy work relationships, just sometimes when it's an overwhelming work relationship or, or maybe one that doesn't satisfy you all the way and you're starting to get sick of, I, I think we find ourselves in that anxiety place a lot. Yeah, Maybe not sure. to this extreme. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Which brings us to what I think is the biggest turning point. After Andy hits this moment, she feels like Miranda just wants her to fail and that she is doing a horrible job and Miranda's being mean to her for the sake of being mean to her. And Nigel, to his credit, because we all need a Nigel, I've had a Nigel at every shitty assistant job I've had, and I'm still friends with all of them, they were the people whose offices I went to when I just needed to cry, or just sit on the floor and curl into a ball, or take a moment, or just be left alone to eat lunch in their office when they're on vacation. These are angels. We all need a Nigel, but I really appreciate that Mm -hmm. he pushes back and challenges Andy to really find the strength within herself to do this job at another level. I think that isn't something he would have said to her if he didn't think she was capable of it. Because on one hand, I appreciate that he encouraged her to really go for it but at the same time i do think that our society has a problem with demonizing quitting i think that if something isn't for you it is perfectly fine to quit because if it's not a good fit it's not a good fit but the fact that it wasn't in her nature to quit and it just lit a fire within her says a lot about her character and it says a lot about this fierce motherfucking vogue montage that we get when she does decide to step up to the plate i can't tell you how many times i have not watched devil wears prada the whole movie i've just pulled up this montage on youtube while i was cooking or cleaning or something and just watched it I love this part of the movie. I think that it's one of my, it's probably right up there with the pretty woman montage of Vivian going into all of the stores that turned her away because she was dressed like a sex worker before. I love it so much. I wish that I could gay gasp. Billy, Steve, what are your (laughs) thoughts on this Vogue montage and just how fucking delightful it is? I have three things to say in response to everything that you just said because you brought Please. up things that are all in my notes number one nigel incredible mm-hmm. stanley tucci remarkable we love stanley tucci put stanley tucci in everything put him on my cereal boxes put him in every tv show <laughs> this man can do no wrong for me you know it's never explicitly stated that nigel is gay but if there is one straight actor that i give a pass to play gay it's stanley tucci oh yeah <laughs> yeah sure. also Uh-oh. so handsome so so handsome. like uh, fine like a wine. fine delicious wine absolutely so handsome second to the cerulean monologue i think nigel's monologue here that propels us into act two where so, you know where he says so many this place these halls where so many women die would die to work you only deign to work that monologue is incredible the delivery of it the the mm. the same thing you can see the wheels turning but you never see stanley tucci working hard 
it's it's effortless for him for this character and we learn so much about why he's at runway and what his dreams are and we learn so much about this character in this in this short monologue stanley tucci was deserved an oscar nom that year as well i think that monologue is the second best one in the film and as I as I mentioned, the reason, you know, the iconic, are those the Chanel boots? The only reason we ever get that is because of Nigel's pep talk monologue, a scene or two before that, right. where he's in that room with her. You know, without that pep talk, we don't get propelled into act two, because that's what finally gets Andy to get her shit together and say, okay, I'm going to do this and make the, con- she makes a choice at that point. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this well. Prior to that, she didn't take it seriously. This is the monologue that gets her to take it seriously and that gives us the rest of the film. So kudos to the writers and kudos to Stanley Tucci for an incredible, you know, interpretation of that. The next thing I'm going to say is the Vogue montage. Two things. Number one, the music supervisor on this deserves I don't know unlimited sexual favors for the rest of their life because the music supervisor (laughs) on this is incredible. Madonna's jump in the beginning when they're all going when the runway girls are all going to work in the New York and that Vogue scene to this the suddenly I see opening up every song you know is is incredible so the music supervisor on the show Absolutely, rent was due, and they did just as much as the costume supervisor. And the last thing I'm going to mention is funny because that you even brought this up. You mentioned the Pretty Woman montage. I love Pretty Woman. I think it's really one of the first modern rom-coms that paved the way for The Devil Wears Prada. You know, when I say modern rom-com, I mean, you know, it's different from the Roman holiday and things like that. It's it's one of the first modern ones. And I see a lot of parallels between Pretty Woman and this movie, how they were critically received, how they were, you know, culturally received. You know, I love, 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 love when a lighthearted, soft movie gets Oscar buzz. Pretty Woman did that. The Devil Wears Prada mm. did that. There are very few. Bridesmaids did that. There are very few films that squeak through the cracks that are of that caliber that make it to the Oscar stage because most of them are like the Oppenheimers and the theory of everything, the heavy dramas. And something I noticed when watching Devil Wears Prada this past time is there's a scene where Andy is wearing a brown shirt with white polka dots and it's got a belt on it. And if you remember... One of my favorite outfits that Julia Roberts wears in Pretty Woman is when they go to play polo. She has a brown dress on with white polka dots and it's belted yes. in Yes. And I think the costume designer on The Devil Wears Prada is Patricia Field, who, for anyone who doesn't know, is absolutely iconic in the industry, both in the fashion industry as well as the entertainment industry. She was this costume supervisor on Sex and the City, their full run, Emily in Paris, and on this film as well. Pat Field does everything with intention. She's not just throwing clothes on these people. Every necklace, every pair of glasses, every ring, belt, socks, whatever, is being thought of and sourced with intention. So for me, I don't think Pat Field is dressing Anne Hathaway's character in this brown with white polka dots and belted look without the intention of drawing a parallel to Pretty Woman, another film about a woman who starts the film in one place and ends the film in a completely different place and goes through this transition of being like a, you know, sex worker at the beginning of the film, hitting this 
high point as a you know polished per- woman who is with a businessman realizing something and then not fully returning back to who she was at the beginning but finding a happy medium at the end and that's what Andy mm. does here too she doesn't return to that sloppy frizzy Andy at the beginning when we see her at the end she's got a much more pared down look from the runway girls just a cleaner. simple leather jacket and jeans yeah yeah but it's cleaner it's put together and that's the same trajectory Julia Roberts goes on in Pretty Woman so I love that you drew that parallel because it exists it's real and I think it was fully intentional for us to draw that parallel. It starts off in a muted way after the Cerulean monologue. Before the monologue that Nigel gives her, her clothes become a bit more fitted and she starts to... Mm -hmm. So the seeds are planted wardrobe-wise because the jump from her job interview outfit to the outfit, to my favorite outfit of hers in the movie, which is the Grecian-looking Calvin Klein dress that she wears during the Harry Potter book. Love. thing that she has to do oh my god eat she was Absolutely. eating and yeah. left no and you know crumbs what? with that outfit let me be what the, to go on record here as officially because i want this archived somewhere for the rest of my life so that it's been said by me i think anne hathaway Maybe I'm crazy. I think Anne Hathaway is one of the fashion girls of our generation. There are only a handful of public figures that the phrase I use is they wear the clothes. The clothes don't wear them. There's only a handful of them. Mm. It's really it's Lady Gaga. It's Rihanna. It's Zendaya. And it's Anne Hathaway for me. Those four can wear anything from any designer. And every single time they are wearing the outfit. A lot of other celebrities, we see them on the red carpet. We see them, you know, in magazines and the clothes are overwhelming. They're eating them up and we're focused on the clothes. Anne Hathaway is one of those really just stripped down. Classic beauties. Where anything and she is the one wearing it her stylist again you kudos to you rent is due you're doing well you're doing your job damn well and that goes for andy in this yeah i love that in that grecian outfit and all of them all of them all of them they all tell a story and i want to start getting into andy's friends here because the friends are such a point of contention in the fandom of the devil wears prada she starts to do well at work and she comes in the beginning of act two giving her friends these expensive bags and these gifts that miranda didn't want so she handed them off to them so her boyfriend doesn't look too pleased her friends are goo goo gaga over the gifts but everyone seems a little taken aback by this new cleaner more polished andy so I want to ask you both a question that has been hotly debated for decades. Are Andy's friends assholes for how they take her phone and toss it around when she has an important work call coming in? I just think they don't get it. I don't think they're necessarily assholes. I just think they had no idea. And that's why they looked so surprised when she was so butthurt about it. The only person I think is truly an asshole is her boyfriend. Mm. And it actually makes no sense that she stayed with him for as long as she did or that she ends up with him to me but oh boy. he just Steve. he just he he just shows big red flag jealous dude energy this is coming from someone who was big red flag jealous dude energy in his 20s so <laughs> i mean maybe i just saw too much of myself i mean i'm gonna quickly chime in and just I... say that my reasons for not hating nate are very superficial that's just because i find the actor to be ridiculously god-awful sexy i feel like i upset billy i need to hear his <gasps> yeah, yeah billy what's your take? i'm gonna jump in here 
I, th- I feel like this is the appropriate time for this. I'm going to jump in because a couple things. Number one, yes, Adrian Grenier, very sexy. I'm, I'm a sucker for a guy with curls, so you, you got me, Adrian Grenier. Number one. Number two, I don't think Andy's friends are assholes for the reason that I think I think they know how intense her job is. I don't think they realize that Andy has made the shift in her mind yet that she cares. I think they oh. are aware that, that Miranda is a nightmare. They, they know how intense it is. But at this particular moment, I don't think they have fully grasped that in Andy's mind that little switch has flipped and she actually cares a little bit more now. So when they Mm. do it, it's playful and it's fun, but they think they're doing it with the quote unquote old Andy. They don't realize because it hasn't been shown to them yet that they're doing it with the new Andy. And that's where I think the the struggle lies. Now to jump into Nate, speaking of things that have been hotly debated for years, I have seen many and many and many people, articles online, tweets, etc hating mm-hmm. Nate. Buzzfeed. They just think Nate is the worst. Yes. Buzzfeed, yes. Steve, I mean, people really agree with you. He is they it's just a jealous. He doesn't get it. He's <laughs> the worst. I am going to ride for Nate. Nate, this I said that there was a hill I would die on was Meryl's Oscar. This is the hill I will die on. Nate is not the villain. <laughs> Nate is nowhere near the villain. There are multiple times throughout this where Nate exhibits what a good boyfriend he is. He is playful. He's caring. Mm. He's a good listener. He he takes in all of Andy's frustrations and he makes her grilled cheeses and and takes care of her. There's some some lines. He's you know he's cheering her on at every every moment. And it's little things where like Anne Hathaway makes a says a line like, "I'm the same Andy, just better clothes." And Nate responds with, "I like the old clothes." That's just. Aww. That's not him being an asshole. That's to me. That's him saying like, "You don't need to change. You're you are great the way you are. Stop letting the pressure of this industry change who you are as a person." And something you know, obviously, the character is not going to say that. They're, we're going to have to read the subtext of it. But him with such a simple line like, "I like the old clothes," wasn't trying to be like, ah, "I don't like this new Andy." It's just trying to be like, "Remember who you are." You were you were great the way you are. You were smart. You know, I liked you a lot when they're fighting in the street. I think I think it's a scene in the street. They're fighting about something and he is humble. He says, you know, Andy, I don't I don't I make port wine reductions all day. I'm not exactly in the Peace Corps like Mm. he like he is letting her know like, hey, I'm not judging you. This is what I do as a living. And, you know, I'm not judging what you do as a living. I just want you to do it with integrity and I want you to be you. I think. 100% 100% Nate is is a godsend. I'm glad they quote unquote end up together at the end. It's kind of left a little bit on the edge. I think they end up together, but I'm thrilled that they end up together. I think I think Nate is great for her and I think he appreciates her for who she is and because of the way Nate is written, we tend to think he's in the villain category, but I disagree. I think the the real villain of this is Christian Thompson, which we can get into in a little bit. That's the real. Oh yeah, guy. we'll. That's the person we should yeah, be directing our hate at. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Hey. I agree with everything you said. Really quickly before we move on to Christian, I I think I take a lot of how he is reacting to it, and this is how I took it, not how I see it as. It, it, as less I see you for who you are and you should still have integrity in what you're doing and more so of the jealous like I can feel you slipping away with every step you take in this direction from me mm. which is the more like 
jealous straight man that I would have been at his age, I think. <laughs> like, I, I think I put myself into his shoes a lot through this because I was like, how would I have acted as a 23-year-old when my, like, girlfriend I've been with since college suddenly starts changing in all of these very dramatic ways and starts, quote-unquote, looking better and interacting with all of these beautiful people like Christian. And I think we've probably danced around it enough. So, Charlie, why don't you tell us about that fucking dirtbag? <laughs> yeah, so what's interesting... The call that Andy was getting was for her to run an errand for Miranda that brings her into the orbit of one Christian Thompson, who is a fellow writer, so they have a lot in common, takes an immediate interest in her. They're in a setting with a lot of people who are socialites. It's very different. Andy, at this point, is doing really well at her job, and she likes that somebody is not just treating her like an assistant, but taking an interest in what her interests are. Before we dig into why Christian is a dirtbag, because I completely agree he is, I want to jump into Andy's head and guess what she was thinking in that moment. I get her attraction to him. I definitely get her attraction and her interest in him, especially coming off the heels of a scene where her friend circle doesn't understand, again, that she's the new Andy and that she's taking her career seriously. I think that deep down, they don't know that what she really wants to do after this is become a prolific writer and really step into that world. So them throwing the phone around to her kind of symbolize them kind of tampering with the very carefully laid plan that she has in her head to move up to the next thing. So to then go to a work event where Christian is asking her about her writing, is taking an interest in that side of her. I think it's refreshing for somebody to see her that way. It isn't, and I don't think that it's purely sexual or maybe it doesn't even start sexual. It's just, he intrigues her. He is somebody who in that world is a different caliber of person who she is interacting with outside of the office. And I think that he is the person who pushes it to be sexual. I don't think that that's in Andy's mind. In Andy's mind, I think she thinks, oh, this is a contact. Of course, he's objectively attractive, but this is somebody who's paying mind to my interest. So I don't think that Andy was ever the aggressor in this situation, in spite of having an interest in just him as a person. But I think that he picked up on that spark and he ran with it until he just became a complete douchebag what do you both think i think that you can't discount how juxtaposing walking away from something that you thought was where your safe place was feeling suddenly very put out by it and immediately walking into a warm place where the the subject in front of you seems very genuinely interested and supportive in that exact same thing like that night and day is so huge. I can say from personal experience where you walk away from a situation where you feel like you're not being seen for what you want and who you are. And then immediately walking into a situation where the grass feels like the greenest shade of green that you've ever stepped on. I, I think that and like when you're desperate for that, I think that can like really affect how you see somebody in front of you, if that makes sense. Hmm. 
Yeah, it does. I think, you know, as you both kind of mentioned in one way or another, I think it's, you know, the script is really well done. The script is laid out in a really smart way. And to have those two scenes back to back is exactly what I would have wanted to do as a writer, what any writer should have done so that you can see Andy's two worlds, you know, her two quote unquote personal life worlds back to back in one. She's not being respected. She is, you know, kind of the butt of a joke. And she's not being appreciated for the hard work she's putting in. And then to immediately flip that and see her with someone who is respected and admired in her industry, giving her that same sort of respect and admiration and being impressed by her is is a lot. I agree with you both, too. I don't think it's sexual for Andy at all. I think she's flattered and she's a 22 year old fresh out of college or grad school who is being, you know, praised by someone who is in his mid thirties and who Mm. she respects and who is also handsome. You know, I think she's flattered, but I don't think there's at this point, even a potential for, for, you know, sexual relationship in her mind. I could be wrong though. No, I agree. I mean, like he definitely ran with whatever the dynamic is in this situation after she came to him for that favor. Which, by the way, I want to get into our next plot point. After that scene, we get to two interesting points. The first point is that Miranda, now getting used to Andy being on top of her shit, actually calls Andy by her real name. She says, oh, and Andy, I'd like you to drop off the book. So I think that that is a very great moment in the film of showing Miranda coming around to just how hyper-competent Andy is and giving her this task that bleeds into her personal life of her coming to Miranda's home and then showing how Andy completely just, I don't even know what the the word is because absolutely fumbles fumbles the the bag. bag. She absolutely fumbles the bag. She should not have gone upstairs. She should not have done that. I think she... Never listen to little girls. Never. Never listen to little girls. But also, I felt for Andy in that moment, because the way that Anne Hathaway acted, she was overthinking. That was a mistake from overthinking. If she would have kept it simple, even if the book was on the wrong table, Miranda... She's fucking busy. You think that she's going to make a... She might give, like, a little side... Yeah. (laughs) She might give, like... She might give side eye of, like, oh, I'm at this table, not this table. You know... She didn't want to quit. Yeah, I think that would have been the worst that Miranda would have done if it was on the wrong table. But to go upstairs and... This is Andy's luck for her to go upstairs at the particular moment that she went upstairs at. I would have been crawling out of my fucking skin at one point. I mean, Mm -hmm. the worst that I've done in a situation like this is when I was an estate manager and I had permission, permission to go upstairs all throughout the house and I accidentally walked in on one of my bosses in the shower but then immediately Mm. walked out it was it was a dude and i think his back was turned and i think that he maybe knew that i didn't know that he was going to be showering at that point it wasn't scandalous like 
we laughed about it. I was like, oh shit, I'm sorry, dude. He's like, don't worry about it. It's fine. But the difference is that I was working inside of the home, not visiting the home to drop off a book. So I was moving through it every day. But to go upstairs inside of a house that you've never been into to drop off that book, like, what do you think of that moment, Steve and Billy? And what would you have done to try and correct it? I mean, personally, when you're an assistant, a personal assistant, you are around someone constantly. You become their right-hand person. And the lines between personal life, professional life get blurred because you are so much a part of their everyday operation. For Andy, she's riding a high in this moment of being like, oh, I'm finally trusted enough to bring the book myself. And I think that high sort of probably caused her to lose her judgment a little bit because I'm with you. My question is like, Andy, you are at this point, you're nailing it. What's the bigger mistake? Leaving it on the wrong table, five feet away from the other one or walking up the stairs? You know, like, come on, you've got to know better. So like clearly the judgment in that moment was lapsing and I think the only reason I can give is because she was doing so well that she like lost the focus and started overthinking as you right saying, you know and the beautiful thing about Anne Hathaway is as an actress everything you need to know is on her face she's got those big eyes and she lets you know when she's overthinking when she wants us to know she's overthinking and she and then when she doesn't want us to know she's overthinking, she turns it off. She's a remarkable actress in that in that regard, you know, just to give her her, her flowers because she deserves them. You do feel the anxiety of that scene, for sure. And it's sort of like that moment in the horror movie where you're screaming at the television to not go into that room. Why would you go into that room? What a terrible decision. You're sort of screaming at Anne to just like, hey, put the book down, turn around, walk out of the fucking house. Like nothing will be wrong if you just turn around and walk out. And then every step she takes up the stairs, you're being like, no, don't do it. Yep. You got those little shining twins. Like, come on, we'll take the book. Come come and play with us forever. Exactly. And Billy, I want to yes and or what we said earlier about my assumption of what Miranda was thinking of, oh, I'm going to fuck with her. I think that I assumed that that moment happened earlier than it actually did. You were right. It didn't happen with the Cerulean monologue. I think it happened with the Harry Potter manuscript. Because that, that was I can def- agree with. We can't argue that that was her trying to bend Andy into a fucking pretzel. That exactly. was... She's not trying to teach her anything there. Yeah, that's not a teaching moment. That is her getting revenge. She's I didn't I didn't like what you did and now I'm going to show you. You're and you're going to get your penance. And I think it's the only time she really goes to that level with her like that in the movie. One because she's too busy, so she has too much going on to really hone in and be that menacing with an assistant, but I think the human side of it is that she knows her marriage is about to end, and the fact that Andy got a window into this weakness of hers makes her deeply uncomfortable, so now she needs to make Andy feel uncomfortable. Like, oh, you know that my marriage is on the rocks? Fuck you. Get my Starbucks. Get my steak. Wait, what's this doing here? I don't want that steak. Oh, Go over here. Where's the piece of paper I had in my hand three days ago? Oh, and if you don't get that Harry Potter manuscript. That's my favorite line in the movie. Yeah, (laughs) I love it so much. Where's that piece of paper I had in my hand yesterday morning? (laughs) Okay. But I will say, ding, ding, ding to that. I agree. This, and it's really fascinating to watch how Miranda as a character 
responds to work-related issues with Andy versus when Andy sees her in her personal life and the issues there. And that's what makes the character so interesting. It's not just a mean boss. It's a really complex character with a lot going on in professional and personal lives. When Andy fucks up at work or, you know, slip, as she said, that's when it becomes a teaching moment. That's when, you know, it may seem like she's ice cold and, you know, could melt melt the skin off her face, as Andy says, but that's her teaching. When Andy fucks up and it involves Miranda's personal life and she hears and sees something she's not supposed to, exactly the word, the phrase you used, it says we see Miranda be a human. She reverts to that pettiness the way we all would, where she's, she's embarrassed, so now she's got to get the upper hand again. And that only comes up when we see Andy encroaching into Miranda's personal life. You know, I love those moments where Miranda's without makeup and in tears after the, her divorce and things like that, because that is, that's what makes Miranda complex and interesting, not just that she's a powerful businesswoman. So I love, I love that you brought that up. Yeah, it's so true. It's so interesting but to yes and that the fact that andy succeeds because Mm -hmm. miranda was she was gonna fire her that day she was gonna fire her but she wanted Mm -hmm. to see her flail in the wind before she fired her just for the smug satisfaction of gotcha bitch oh yeah you're gonna walk upstairs i'm gonna make you run you are gonna have pit stains in your couture by the end of the day because I'm going to run you that fucking ragged. I think that that is what Miranda was going for. But Andy showing her grit and actually doing it and actually thinking ahead to get the twins copies and to have an extra copy just to have on file. Miranda at that point was okay. Respect. I mean, this is a perfect example. I used the phrase before. Miranda was gagged and I think that first meeting with Miranda and Andy where Andy speaks up for herself and says you know and Miranda's taken aback and then hires her that's just foreshadowing for this it's showing us that Andy has the power to surprise Miranda and that's I think what gets her this job in the first place and keeps this job for her is that Miranda is not used to being surprised by people right professionally and work nothing nothing catches miranda off guard because she is nothing on guard always and andy is the exception andy can repeatedly catch miranda off guard throughout the film and that is what keeps her going as long as she does and that's what earns her the quote-unquote positive recommendation later in the film i completely agree and i would also this is slightly jumping ahead I would say because they were able to work through this bump in the road with Andy coming out and proving that she could rise to the occasion is why Miranda treats her differently when she walks in on Miranda with no makeup and Mm -hmm. actually starts talking about, oh, so, you know, he's leaving me. Like, I think that this was the perfect setup to pay that off in act three of the film before we hit the climax we'll talk more about that when we get there after andy starts doing really well at work she pretty much starts to rise above emily as the dominant assistant to the point where miranda asks both of them to come to a very important event where they both have to memorize the names and faces of people in two binders and whisper in Miranda's ear who's approaching, what the relationship is, and Andy succeeds, whereas Emily flops. And 
I have a theory as to why Andy succeeds in this world as an assistant, whereas Emily kind of struggles a little bit. I think because Emily reveres the magazine and the work so much that she's willing to sacrifice her sense of self. Emily doesn't have touch with her instincts the way that Andy does because Andy knows that this isn't it for her. For Emily, this is it to the point where she would die for Runway and she would just let Miranda call her the wrong name. She would never call her out. Whereas Andy does have those moments of, no, this is who I am. I think that strong sense of self gives Andy the mental bandwidth and just the self-awareness to be able to pull that name out of her hat. Whereas Emily puts so much pressure on herself because it's this or nothing. I don't think she sees a future for herself outside of Runway. And I've known assistants like that. Like, what are your views on Emily as a character? Like, what do you think's going on in her head? At this particular time, this is, you know, when Emily is sick. So I think the writers probably gave her this little flu to try and give us a reason to believe that she would forget the name. To mm. give, obviously, Andy an excuse to remember the name and make Andy shine in that moment. I don't know. You know, I haven't really thought about this. And I, it's interesting. I'd love to think about it more. I don't know that I necessarily agree with the idea that Emily doesn't see anything else for herself after this. I think the natural assumption is that Emily sees herself becoming like Miranda someday, but I also don't think mm. that's true. You know, I think there is certainly a, a contentedness to where she is being Miranda's first assistant, but maybe I just want to believe that the character wants more. I don't know. That's a really fascinating thing. I just really adore that character every line that comes out of her mouth makes me laugh don't let her see this it's foul and then throws <laughs> briefcase across the room is like hysterical but yeah you know i've definitely known some emily's who are career assistants i just don't know that this emily is one yeah it's a good thing to hmm. think about very fair very fair answer okay moving on to the next b now that andy is again proving herself we have the do or die moment where Miranda invites her back into her home and says, hey, by the way, I'm taking you to Paris. I'm not taking Emily to Paris, even though it's everything she wants. And if you don't accept this offer, I'm going to assume that you're not serious about Runway or your future at any other publication. If we were Andy and we had to make this decision, would we have thrown Emily under the bus? What would we have done in this moment if posed I'm not going to pretend like I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't even pretend like I wouldn't at all. I want so badly to say that I wouldn't and for it to be true. But the reality is, I think, you know, in the same situation, in the same circumstances, I would do it. Yeah, because you have and no would, choice. You're backed against yeah. the corner. This is the one scene in the film that I really don't love Miranda in because it feels threatening and up until now Miranda has never felt threatening she's been intimidating but intimidating and threatening I think are two very different things Andy decides to throw Emily under the bus she's going to Paris and in making this decision to go to Paris she takes a break from her relationship with Nate which to be honest every time I watch 
film or a TV show where characters go on a break in their relationship. I kind of call bullshit a little bit because never in my adult life have I taken a break from a relationship. Like a legit relationship, I've either just broken up or we were in a situationship that wasn't defined, that kind of fizzled out. So I find the whole concept of going on a break in a relationship, and it could just be me, It could just be me and my own life experience because maybe one or both of you or neither one of you have experienced that and it's all three of us. But I just, I find that we're on a break specifically with how it's in the public consciousness because of Ross and Rachel from Friends to be so contrived and so fake to the point where when it shows up in anything, I just want to roll my eyes. It's like, just be honest, you're gonna go on a break so that one or both of y'all can fuck somebody else then you can get back together or break up it just feels very forced to me i don't know if it feels like that for y'all we constantly overlook the fact that ross tries to use the fact that they were on a break as an excuse for the fact that he just literally fucked somebody else because he got drunk and was sad right like i i do think that it's a made-up concept by that show that people have glommed onto so they can get away with doing what they want and like using semantics as a way to get away with it i personally have i have had a breakup and then gotten back together with somebody same but the concept of a break feels dubious to me the terminology is it's it's essentially you know going on a break is i mean at least to me breaking up it's the terminology that's different and i think that terminology is easier for people to swallow than saying let's break up break up feels so final So I think in this moment, you know, I fully believe neither Andy nor Nate has any intention of going to fuck anyone else. Right. However, I think the terminology they use is just less fatal. And also, let's remember, Mm. going back to the Nate villain thing, let's remember that Andy is the one who suggests the break, not Nate. Nate is a ride or die. This is true. Has no intention of leaving Andy. She suggests the break. This is true. So yeah, so okay. I think it's all, as you said, like a semantics thing. So moving on, we're in Paris. It's gorgeous. We're loving it. My favorite scene in the movie, and I think a lot of people's favorite scene, is when Andy goes to brief Miranda on what's going to be happening the next day. And she stumbles upon Miranda without makeup, without any of the armor on, in a bathrobe, just decompressing and really sad and at rock bottom because of the end of her marriage. I love this scene because when Anne Hathaway talks about it, she says, I feel that I didn't really have to act in that scene. All I had to do was show up and listen and watch Meryl do her thing. And all of my expressions and reactions were genuine because I was watching her be so in this character that I was there with her. So it was, it wasn't an easy day at work for her, she said. She just said that it was Meryl rubbing off on her, being that into the character, that she had no trouble believing this moment. So both of you, when it comes to this moment, why do you think that Miranda felt that comfortable opening up to Andy about that point in her life? Would she have done that with Nigel? Would she have done that with anybody? Do you think that it was because of who Andy is specifically? What are your thoughts? I actually, I disagree that she's decompressing. I think Andy catches her in a weak moment and she decides to go fuck it. But I don't, I thought that the turn into I'm now going to let you into my personal life was one that I don't think that Andy, like, I don't know why. I 
at that point, it would still feel more to her character to be like, get the fuck out, mm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think for me, watching Miranda there, we talked about the difference between her personal life and her professional life. I think the thing is, Miranda has people that are close to her. Emily, Nigel, James Holt. There are people who are close to her, but they all admire and respect her and and treat her like this goddess woman. Andy does that, but Andy has established on several different occasions with Miranda that she isn't doing any of this because she worships Miranda. She's doing it because she admires her and respects her and sees her grind. And at this point, I really think this is... Miranda has nobody. Miranda has nobody that mm. she can go to with this. She doesn't have Steven anymore. You know, they're divorcing. She, Her girls are too young. She doesn't have friends, really, because her life is runway. And if Emily were in that room, she wouldn't have spoken like that to Emily. If Nigel were there, nope. I don't think she would have opened up like that to Nigel. She opened up to Andy like that because Andy's all she has. It's the closest person she has, and she trusts Andy at this point. I'm thinking more now about what you said, Stephen, about how it's like not necessarily earned, and I definitely want to think about that more, but I will say I love that it's there, and I know it was Meryl's idea to go without makeup and to be that vulnerable, and I'm glad she did because it really does give you another view into Miranda, but I really think it's a moment where she needs to let some tension out and let's call a spade a spade i don't think miranda is has a weekly standing therapy appointment so she's really got nobody to, <laughs> to true so, you know andy takes that card she's everything all in one and the control on meryl's part but really on miranda's part that she is able to flip from her personal distress right into business it's almost like a like she was in a haze not you know she had to let it out but as soon as it was out it was all right we need to figure out what to do with snoop dog because he's barely speaking to, and donatella is barely speaking to anybody she feels in her heart and in her head all right i got it out we're done crying about this right back to business and she knows she can control Andy in that way, you know? So I think that's why she feels right. comfortable enough being vulnerable with her. Okay, yeah. All right, I want to save the point that I was going to make for later because I think that there is also a hint that she might have felt a little embarrassed about that moment and how she treats mm. Andy when Andy tries to warn her about it. But the morning after Andy has sex with Christian, she does that and she sees the mock-up for what Runway is going to look like with Donatella as the head of the magazine. And she's immediately defensive. I would have been the same way in Andy's position by nature of just who I am. And after grinding and working to earn her respect and also earn the access into her personal life that Andy got. So she rushes, tries to tell Miranda, tries to tell Miranda, Miranda shuts her down, Miranda's not available. There's this moment where Miranda obviously clearly knows what Andy's trying to do, and she says, oh, do I smell that? Billy, what was the flower? There was a particular flower that she smelled. Do I smell freesias? I better not Free- smell freesias. <laughs> I'm going to be very, very disappointed. Why and did? I think that was her very subtle, subtle way of maybe putting Andy in her place because she did reveal too much. Not super malicious. It was just more like, a, I see you. I see what you're doing. You think that we have like a thing, but like, go do your job. I'll be fine. I can take care of myself. I'm not some helpless woman. I think that that's what that moment was. 
the moment where she throws Nigel under the bus to save her position at runway, then later reveals what she did to Andy in the car ride, makes me want to retroactively take back something that I thought 10 minutes ago when you, Billy, were saying that if Nigel were in the room, she would have opened up to him. I agree with you now. In the moment, I didn't. I was like, I think she would open up to Nigel, but Nigel is one of the few people that have really consistently impressed her and kept up with her at work. But I think that their relationship is purely at work. And also from a logistical standpoint, she wouldn't have opened up to him because she knew that she was about to betray him. So that shit wouldn't have flied. She's like, oh, I know what I'm about to do. So I'm just gonna keep some distance, but maybe I'll make it up to you later. Maybe I won't. But this moment where she says, I see a lot of myself in you, Andy. What do you think she meant when she said that? And do you think that from Miranda, this is the highest compliment that she can give somebody? What do you both think of that moment? In the outline, you said, is this the highest compliment or is it the darkest omen? Mm. And I actually think it rides the line between both. And I actually think this is something that Miranda started thinking from the moment that she met Andy. Ooh. While Andy did not make the best impression, and this is where I'm going to give the movie a little bit of credit, because I'm, I'm, I might come in hotter towards the end here. But I think when she first met Andy, what she saw that reminded her of herself was not necessarily an understanding of the fashion industry or a love for the magazine of Runway. It was a knowing that you're good at what you're good at and not letting anybody tell you otherwise, and also not like compromising who you are right away. And I think there's a little bit of pushback from her friends and her boyfriend that she's compromising who she is. Mm. But I think what Miranda saw in Andy is, oh, I see a lot of raw stuff that I knew that I had, and with a little direction and a little bit of honing, she can become brilliant. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that's the best way to put it is it straddles that line. It's the highest compliment for Miranda and the darkest omen for Andy. And that's exactly, I think, how we are meant to receive it. You know, again, I've mentioned before, we're seeing this film as Andy. We're supposed to be Andy. So when we're, if you're sitting in that car and someone whose personal life is in flames and, you know, really is just all about, if you see someone like that, turn to you betray their friends and you say oh i see a lot of you myself that's a dark omen for you you know that's a red flag you right. should run and that's exactly what andy does you know yeah yeah and i don't fault her for it and i don't think that miranda faults her for it either i think miranda mm -hmm. is again surprised that this happened this is the first time and what's great about meryl's acting is that in the job interview she was impressed and surprised but it was subdued when the harry potter manuscript flew on her desk she was surprised but it was subdued there was nothing subdued about the moment when she looked back and saw that andy had just thrown her phone into the fountain she was definitely like you said billy our girl was gagged she was gagging mm -hmm. i think it's what she's i think she subconsciously wanted her to do that and i think you know as we've said andy has a history of pleasantly surprising miranda it's what keeps her around that long. Mm. And I think that's what she wanted her to do, but not what she expected her to do. And when she does it, right. boom, bing, bang, boom, she's done it again. She's pleasantly surprised Miranda. She showed her, this is not what I'm going to become. And 
that is the final nail in the coffin that leads to the resolution between the two of them the resolution that we see come later and let's get to that resolution and speak about that before we give our ratings i love that after andy quits miranda gives her what is her highest capacity of giving anybody a glowing recommendation which is short Mm -hmm. curt to the point my biggest disappointment and you are an idiot if you don't hire her i think that that is the best that miranda can do and also that's pretty fucking awesome to give somebody who didn't even work for you for a year and who walked away during a work event that glowing of a recommendation i think that's great let's speculate very quickly this will be the last thing that we talk about before we move on to our ratings how do we think miranda would react years from now running into andy at a work event they're in the same space and andy comes up to her to say hello how does that conversation go does miranda try to put her in her place is it does she keep it short is it a genuine conversation what do y'all think i think it's like a phone conversation with my oma it lasts for about three minutes and i walk away not actually thinking we talked about anything but it was nice (laughs) to hear her voice Yeah, similarly, I think it's very similar to when she saw, who was it, the prime minister, the the senator, whoever, who left his wife, and that's the woman he left his wife for, Rebecca. I think it's very much that. Kiss on the cheek. How is it? And how's, you know, how's Rebecca? Whatever. That's it. And then on to the next one. There's no, you know, no love lost, no personal relationship. It's just, see ya, business. Should give her a, a nice little smirk and move on. Although I do think Andy tries to thank her for the recommendation. And she's like, what recommendation? Mm-hmm. Oh. Like, barely even think about it. Yeah, Interesting. Exactly. Before we move on to ratings, I also want to point out something that I never realized until this watch of the movie. There is a moment at the ball where Miranda leans into one of her contacts and she's like, so did you get my note? Mm-hmm. That moment is her already 10 steps ahead of getting all the contacts she needs to agree to walk away with her if she's replaced. This woman is always fucking working and that's why she's an mm-hmm. icon. And when I caught it in this watch, I literally was like, <gasps> I never caught that moment before, but that's what that was. So good. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure that's Irv. That's the guy she has the meeting with Mm -hmm. later. He's the one who is running, overseeing the move of Jacqueline Foyer to become the editor of American Vogue. So when she says, do you get my note? I always took that as like, she already let him know, hey, I want to speak to you about this. So he knows she's onto it. And that's when she says, no business. No, no, I agree. No business tonight. But I think that's her letting him know, like, you know, hey, we have to talk about this. You know, this is important to me. And him trying as best as he can to avoid it because he knows that she's caught on. All brilliantly, brilliantly understated. So let's go to ratings. So, Billy, we usually rate these with one out of five batarangs because the Batman animated series rewatch is our bread and butter. But for this, I thought it would be fun in keeping with the letter B Instead of batterings, we give it one out of five Birkin bags. So, Billy, Billy, with you, (laughs) Billy also starting with a B, with you being our guest, what do you rate this movie one out of five Birkin bags? What do you get it? Give it one being poor, five being flawless. This is a sin, but I'm going to cut a Birkin bag in half, and I'm going to give it four and a half Birkin bags. 
and I rate it so highly <laughs> because flawless is a very flawless is a very difficult standard to achieve and I'm sure if I went back and there are a few little things that we mentioned some we mentioned some we didn't that I would change but that being said the film is almost 20 years old I've rewatched it countless times I've grown up with this film being in my life I will watch it many more times after this and I just love it I think the writing is spectacular the costume design is spectacular the music selection is spectacular the acting is is out of this world casting is great all of the praises I've already given it. It's a complex movie, but it's also lighthearted. It's one of those movies, as I mentioned way earlier, where when you're sick or you're tired or you're studying abroad and you're homesick, you can throw a blanket on, pop this movie in, and you feel comfortable watching it. But at the same time, it's not just fluff. It's not a boring movie. It has a message. It has heart. It's a rom-com that made it all the way to the Oscars. And if that's not the best way to encapsulate what a good film for me is, I don't know what else is. So yes, four and a half Birkins. All right, Steven. I was hoping that this would come up earlier in the natural discussion of the plot, but I'm a little glad that it didn't because I want to give this its own moment because it directly affects how I scored this movie. And I don't disagree with anything that has been said with yet. I think the acting was brilliant. I think it was well-written. I think it's a fun movie. I think it has its moments. And I would love to know what you guys think about this. This movie is horridly fat phobic to a point where I was distracted Mm. because it kept coming up. And I watched this with my partner who also had things to say about how fat phobic it is. And I think the easy way to is to hand wave it and be like, well, that was the early 2000s, mid 2000s, whatever, what have you. And I've decided in rating this movie and I hope that you, Charlie and Billy, and the audience, as you're hearing this, keeps me accountable to it in the future, is if we watch a movie that is so problematic to our standards today that it distracts me, it's going to affect the way that I score it. So I'm giving this two and a half Birkin bags. Okay. Because wow. it it took me so far out of enjoying the experience, I have to rate it that way. Okay, yeah. yeah. Respect. I feel Respect. that a lot. And I think there is no real commentary about the issue other than being overweight is bad being thin is good and to me that is lazy there is no point of view on that other than that and the one thing and i say this as a you know thin white man but the one thing that truly did bother me about the incessant mention of weight and whatnot is when nigel and andy are toasting in the room after you know, she doesn't. Yes. Like, yeah. And he says, you bet your size six ass. And she clinks his glass and says four. And that bothered me because that to me is, again, we're supposed to be Andy. We are supposed to share Andy's point of view. And for Andy to be happy that she has lost the two sizes, that's where I find a lot of trouble. Because if in that moment, Andy was able to stand up for herself and say something along the lines of, I'm like, yep, I'm a proud six or whatever it is, or, you know, that would have changed Mm -hmm. my mind a little bit on it but the fact that she's excited and cheersing to that that troubles me because it is that's where the point of view and the message comes through and i i don't agree with it or enjoy it i agree with your take there that was the moment where i looked at my partner and i was like oh this isn't a joke this is they mean this they're telling us what they mean without any tongue-in-cheek to yes and what you both said in the real world emily blunt 
footage of her from an old interview came back to light of her recount a story of a waitress and her without any need to bring it up just saying oh yeah so this fat waitress xyz and i think that was about 10 years ago or maybe even 12 years ago and the internet was dragging her for it and emily to her credit didn't try to defend herself she said yeah that was really fucked up i also don't know why i brought her weight into it that had nothing to do with the story i'm sorry it was a very simple apology but i think it also shows that somebody who is involved in this film was also impacted by its message and the character that she played Mm -hmm. so i thought that that was very interesting and i didn't Steve, thank you for bringing this up. I didn't think about that until now. But yeah, Yeah. my rating, how many Birkins I'm going to give this. Like Billy, I don't think that this is a flawless movie, but I would be lying if I said that this wasn't something that I have revisited many times, strictly as somebody who just is intellectually turned on by things that are well-crafted and well-executed and well-acted. So I'm going to be giving it not four and a half Birkins. I'm going to give it four Birkins because I think that it's great. I think that it's really well structured. I think that every scene moves. I think that no moment in this movie is wasted. I think that the way that they captured New York, specifically as somebody who comes from New York, definitely feels true and it doesn't feel contrived or plastic or really fake. I like the insight that it gave to the fashion industry. I love that we're still quoting Meryl Streep's character. I love that when Meryl Streep approached Beyonce at the Grammys, there was that meme of, what did Meryl say? She's like, oh yeah, so your daughter's name isn't blue. It's not this, it's Cerulean. (laughs) I think the fact that that lives on till today is amazing. So it's going to get four Birkins for me just from being a total icon of a movie but also something that purely in a script form i read for myself just to keep up on my craft thank you for joining us on this episode of charlie and steve watch stuff billy before we get out of here where can we find you on social media thank you yeah thank you guys so much for having me honestly it was such a blast and you can find me at b larusso underscore b-l-o-r-u-s-s-o underscore on instagram and twitter awesome thanks for joining us and listeners thank you for listening to this episode enjoy the rest of your day and we'll see you later bye everybody